This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. It's our loss here in America of not knowing our own artists. So I would love to just have been able to go back to like 1965 and catch them at the marquee. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? In London Rain Over Me... Stephen Tao makes the case that London, more than any other city, gave the world musical riches. I'll I'll, I'll quote him. Uh, When has humanity had such an intense concentration of artistic expression? Stephen, uh, thank you for joining us on the Books Podcast. It's a big claim. It certainly is. And and, uh, it's funny because when uh, Bill Bruford, who from Yes, who, of course, wrote the uh, foreword, um, he read that and that he hadn't seen the epilogue. I wrote that later and that's in the epilogue. And, uh, and he said, wait a minute, what about like Vienna in the uh, 18th century or, you know, stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that Orson Welles speech. You know, yeah. I, I was just, uh, you, you could certainly make arguments for other times and places where, um, you know, there was dramatic musical change, Kansas city here in, in the thirties and things like that. But, um, certainly it, it, London was such a dramatic, um, in, in a very short time completely changed music as we know it and, and for the better let's go back to the beginning um I, I i i imagine many of the names that we're going to uh mention are i hope familiar to uh, our listeners i'll bet not everybody has heard of chris barber and yet for you it sort of all starts with him doesn't it can we talk about him and, and see where he fits in sure uh, chris barber is somebody that uh i really wasn't all that familiar with when I started working on this book, you know, I'd heard of people like Alexis corner and, um, uh, John Mayle, of course, and and some of these folks that were sort of pioneers in in British blues. And, um, but I was like, who's this Chris Barber guy. And, And basically what I discovered is that everything really started with him. He was a, you know, still with us, I think, and a jazz trombonist. Um, but he was a guy that started everything. He was the guy that brought all these, um, wonderful uh, African-American uh, blues artists over to the UK in the 50s and introduced a whole generation of people to this music. And uh, he recorded Rock Island Line with Lonnie Donegan, which started this skiffle boom that basically started every rock star you can think of uh, on a path to, uh, you know, what we call classic rock now. He opened the Marquee Club, which everybody played at. Uh, everybody, that, you know, that was the place to play and started the, what became the Reading Festival, which is a, a huge uh, festival every year. So, yeah, he, he, was, he was a key person. In all when, when was he doing this? Uh, well, he started, uh, you know, he was born in uh, like 1930. Uh, but he started his first uh, jazz band in 1949. And in his jazz band was a guitar player named Alexis Corner. And uh, so Alexis Corner became sort of the guy for the blues. And so he kind of got Alexis Corner started. And then, like I said, in the 50s, brought all like Muddy Waters over to the UK and uh, Sonny Terry Brownie McGee, Sisters at a Tharp, uh, all these incredible artists and uh, you have all these young kids and just in different different ages anyway just seeing these people and, and experiencing this music because they this was not something that you could find on the they wouldn't play it on the bbc so it was very difficult to, to and it was like we never seen anything like this before so you kind of like got all of this started and the uh, skiffle song was uh, came out in like 1956 and uh that became a huge hit and started the entire country of uh, post-war kids playing, you know, skiffle and eventually rock and roll. Because the great thing about skiffle was that you didn't actually need to be very good, did you? You didn't need the big musical chops at, at that time. If you wanted to get a washboard and a, and a banjo, you could form a band. 
Right. It, it was kind of like punk rock before there was punk rock. You know, the ideal of punk rock is that anyone can do it. Just do it. doesn't matter whether you're any good. It doesn't matter that you don't have, you know, years and years of training at, at Juilliard on your instruments. Um, you know, you just get up there and do it. And, and I think that, uh, and you don't have to have a lot of money. And so a lot of these kids did not. And so, yeah, you, you basically, if you could just find a you know cheap secondhand guitar or banjo and make your own bass out of your mom's tea chest and you set a washboard, a thimble, and now you have a band. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Alexis Corner and uh, John Mayle, and I, I imagine most of us uh, are familiar with the names at least. Of course, um, they they gave rise to and, and, and nurtured, they were almost like a, a, a an academy for blues rock in the UK. Almost everybody in London played for them before going on to great things. Right. They, they were kind of carrying the torch for blues. I mentioned Chris Barber. Chris Barber wasn't so much devoted to the blues. Um, he was, you know, like I said, jazz trombonist. And um, he liked the blues. He played blues. But but those guys, uh, especially um, uh, Corner and and uh, John Mayall, they, they just, they were, it was the gospel for them. That was their job. And so they did. And, and they just, they were, you know, to have the kind of, to sort of sublimate their egos, to have people with such talent in their bands um you know like people who, like charlie yeah. watts and you know and and uh, you know eric clapton peter green and john McVie and uh on and on and on of uh talent because they wanted the best players so you wanted to play with alexis corner or john mayo you had to be good and, and so a lot of these folks were like learning you know let's say clap he left the arbors and joined the blues breakers he was like he kind of got this finishing school thing going and and, uh, you know, it became an important uh, piece for the musicians and then just keeping the blues alive in the UK. And Clapton, of course, became quite a good guitarist. <laughs> has to be he play a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is that America had the blues. It comes from America. Um, why then does London turn that into the classic rock and, and we have the explosion that you describe in the book? Well, there's kind of like, as you're asking that question, I'm thinking of two parts. First of all, it, it's it's our loss here in America of not knowing our own artists. Um, and I uh, mentioned this in, in, in the introduction to the book that you have Jimmy Page sitting down with David Letterman a few years back. And, oh, who are your influences? And Page is like, you know, Jimmy Reed and Sonny Boy Williamson. He starts rattling off some of these names. And Letterman's like a deer caught in the headlights. Like, Sonny Boy who? <laughs> Like, it's one of ours, dude. Well, of course, and, one of the points um, is know, that they were all black. And um, yes. we, uh, the, the British, perhaps, were a little more accepting of, of black artists. Yes, no doubt. Uh, certainly uh, back then, um, you know, whether it was uh, somebody like uh, Sonny Boy Williamson or John Lee Hooker or Muddy Waters, any of those folks, later on, Jimi Hendrix, um, a guy by the name of Gino Washington, um, who, who was an American who went over there and stayed, who's still there. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, uh, they, especially back in the fifties and sixties, everything was segregated here and, um, they were treated. It was, it was kind of uncomfortable for a lot of the black musicians because they, they were treated so badly in America. And then they went over to the UK and they're treated like royalty. <laughs> so they had a troll handling it a little bit. I want to talk as well about the locations. You make a great deal out of the, the specific clubs and the, the locations in which uh, these bands had uh, the opportunity to perform. Um, and I, I wonder if you think 
that the locations are important. As it happens, I, I, where I live, I'm, I'm bang in the middle of that West London scene. Uh, you know, I'm sort of halfway between uh, Ealing, where the Ealing Jazz Club was, and Richmond, where Crawdaddy Club was. And I, I, I can walk to Eel Pie Island. In fact, of course, while I was reading your book, I did. I had to go down and have a look at, at uh, where oh, cool. the Eel Pie Island Hotel uh, was. It's not there now, of course. It's just some apartment blocks. And... And I think in the book you say that um, if this was America, there'd be museums there dedicated to these places, and and we've just lost them. You 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 have to go and look for them, and and if you didn't know, you wouldn't know where they were. Right. I just kind of look at that and I say, you know, because we go to the other extreme, right? You know, if if there was a Rolling Stones, if the Rolling Stones were American, and the Crawdaddy was here. There would be a whole museum with, you know, you could buy side classes and you could pretend to be Mick Jagger and it's all interactive thing and it's all about crash commercialism <laughs> on the other side in the UK. Yeah, you kind of have to go, oh, wait a minute, you know, and I was like, wait, where is, uh, where was the hotel to see this lady taking out her trash rubbish, right? And uh, You made and the pilgrimage, says, oh, the did you? You went down there and, and, and met oh, this lady. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I did. And and she says, oh, it was right, you know, my home is right here and, and that's that's where the the hotel was but there's no indication that there was anything there so yeah and it was such i think your pilot in particular was such a unique place uh such a uh, eclectic and um sort of odd place to go but it's for still an kids, odd place it's still an odd place yeah. to go for, for, for those yeah. who don't know it it really is it's a genuinely an island in the thames in the river thames and until 1957 there wasn't even a bridge over to it you had to be out in a swim or something even though people lived there you had yeah either swim or there was like a, a barge you could sort of like a chain barge you could pull yourself over and then the bridge went up and even that wasn't a tiny little bridge but it was like a whole sort of it was an adventure for the fans, an adventure for the bands to get their equipment over there. Um, and you kind of went there and you look forward to it all week and you go down to the Yopi Island and you pay your, you know, <laughs> couple of pence to the little old lady at the bridge to get across. And, and, and it was just an experience. Uh, and, and there was tremendous talent um, playing it there, you know, American and, and British talent for sure. We talked about uh, uh, Londoners uh, playing the blues and R&B. Um, so, something happened then, though, didn't it? Yeah, I, again, I'm going to quote you. As 1965 dawned, those making R&B music in London realised they could head in one of two possible directions. They could stay faithful to their roots, like Eric Clapton, John Mayle, uh, Graham Bond, Alexis Corner, or they could make hit records. So something happened. There was there was a diversion there, and and some something uh, caused. Again, I'm going to use the word explosion. Yeah, you had to. It's like anything else. You know, there's that conflict between art and commerce. And uh, by the time you get to '65, if you really wanted to kind of make the next step, you you had to. You couldn't just continue to play the blues. And there were people like the John Mayles and Lexus Corners that kept the blues flame going. But if you wanted to, uh, you know, if you were the, the Yardbirds or, or the Moody Blues in the early days, you, you needed a hit. And so that, that kind of, that definitely changed right around that time. Yeah. And of course, Eric Clapton rather famously uh, departed when, when the Yardbirds made a hit record. He said, no, I'm not doing that. And, um, and walked. He did. He, he was, you know, at that time, I mean, you know, always has been very dedicated to the blues, continues to be. 
Um, but um, yeah, he just was like, no, I, they, they bought the song For Your Love, became a big hit, but he's like, I, I don't want to do that. And that's when he moved on to, to the Blues Breakers, eventually, of course, the Cream. Oh yeah, he, he had some success in due course. He did, he did okay for himself. He did yeah. okay. And here, here actually, that leads me on to another uh, point. S- some of the bands in this in, that you talk about, they have fantastic longevity. You know, you've got your Pink Floyds and your Rolling Stones and, and the Who, but some were Mayflies. Uh, you talk about the pretty things. Uh, Cream, Eric Clapton, again, a short-lived band. Tomorrow, a band called Tomorrow, that Steve Howe of Yes played in before he went to yes what what made the difference why did some implode so quickly uh that's a big question i mean i I think in some of the reason like i'm thinking of cream you had these three guys that enormous talent enormous egos uh and uh you know that's difficult to hold together for a long time and but if you look at like the stones i think the stones lasted because yeah, you had the big egos, but everybody kind of knew, you know, Mick's the star, Keith is the star, and then, you know, we're just kind of doing our jobs, and they just were able to keep hold that together for many, many years. The Who, I can't figure that one out. Those guys are just, <laughs> those two of them left, you know, and, and but uh, yeah, they just kind of, they explosive personalities and all that sort of thing. But, they were a yeah, combustible they, mix, weren't they? <laughs> Yeah, really. I would have, man, how much I would love to just have been able to go back to like 1965 and catch them at the marquee. That would have just been incredible. Uh, do you know, I, I saw The Who uh, only once. And uh, at that time, uh, uh, Pete Townsend, the guitarist, was going deaf. And Roger Daltrey, the singer, had a sore throat. Uh, the drummer was actually dead. Um, <laughs> Keith was already dead. And they were still the best live band I'd ever seen. And I, I sat there awestruck saying, what were these guys like when they were good? They must have been sensational. They were. They were just. Uh, uh, they, uh, the Who touches on everything, you know, everything in rock and roll, pretty much. The Who touches on the you, blues, you, you, psychedelia. You, What's yeah, up? You 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 say that uh, the Who are perhaps more important even than the Stones, or at least more influential than the Stones. So yes, please do tell me about the Who. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I like they they touch on on so many things, and uh, you know, like I mentioned the, the blues, and they touch on psychedelia. They kind of had a role in getting a progressive rock going. Uh, uh, they, you could argue, they were really punk rock in the early days, and and they kind of were that. They had that incredible energy, and um, so yeah, I mean, uh, this the Who and the Stones. I mean, uh, you know, I love both of the bands, but um, if I had to, if you just pinned me down and said pick one, I'm gonna go with the Who, just because they just, I mean, when they were at their peak, you know, once they once they everybody has their peak and they just kind of move on, but when they were at their peak, nobody could touch them. They were a fantastic, exciting band. I agree, and of course, uh, you, well, you you also tell us, uh, and it's a very interesting story uh, about Marshall Amps. One of the elements that contributed to London's preeminence was the development of Marshall Amps and, and Pete Townsend of The Who um, got involved in in, in, uh, in prescribing what he wanted to the Marshall uh, people. I love the Marshall story. It wasn't some big corporation that saved rock and roll. Was, you know, these few of these people at a little drum shop in West London that basically revolutionized the sound of the music and a team of engineers and and uh, and Jim Marshall and Terry Marshall and 
and uh, and yeah, these and they and I think what was cool about it too is as you mentioned, Pete Townsend, you know, people like him and uh, and Richie Blackmore and and Clapton and uh, Big James uh, Sullivan, who was a important session player, would come in and say, yeah, we're looking for we want we want something we're not getting. We're not getting this from from the other companies. Uh, either it's too expensive or it's not the sounds we want. And the, uh, the Marshall people said, okay, let's, let's kind of tweak this. And what do you want? You know, and, and they finally got it to what the musicians really wanted. And that was the cool thing about it. It was musician driven and, uh, and, and, and they became, you know, the standard bearer, you know, everywhere everybody recognizes. In fact, I, I went out to uh, dinner with Terry Marshall a few years back in London and he signed, he just wrote his name Marshall in that famous <laughs> script. And I was like, wow, I got to keep that. <laughs> Absolutely. Stick it on any, any other fire and say, yeah, oh, it's a Marshall now. <laughs> yeah. Right. All, all, like all good books about music, this one inevitably sent me back to listen to stuff that I haven't heard for years or sometimes stuff that I didn't know if it was, uh, if it was, a, you know, I never listened to the Pentangle when I was young. So, you know, you discover new stuff. Mentioned the Beatles. Uh, regular listeners will be astonished that I haven't, yet made any reference to the Beatles because I'm an absolute Beatles nut. Um, and you, you don't you don't try to write them out of the uh, the book. But that's not what this book is about. Uh, the Beatles moved to London professionally in the early 60s, but they never really became a part of this scene, did they, of the London music scene? The others did. Uh, the Animals were from Newcastle. They they became part of the London scene. You've got uh, Jimi Hendrix and uh, uh, you know, half of Led Zeppelin. Uh, why is that? Why Why was london so did, did did it retain its identity so much why did the beatles for instance not become part of that well if you look at the it's funny because the beatles uh beatles are the beatles it's their everything right yeah <laughs> um, so um so obviously i couldn't even though they they weren't playing club dates in london i couldn't ignore them in the book so so i talked to them you know about them in the book because you have to um, and, you know, I am also like yourself, a, a fan of the Beatles anyway. Um, but the Beatles had already kind of made their club, you know, presence felt in, uh, either in Hamburg, Germany or, or Liverpool. And so they of course had to come to London, especially back then if they wanted to get a record deal, which they did. Um, but there wasn't really, they were already kind of getting on package tours early on. There wasn't like they had to kind of make a name for themselves at the London club circuit or the surrounding area. So. Yeah. You're saying that by the time they got to London, they were already the finished product. They were already the package, uh, whereas uh, all these other bands were sort of in formation. They were they were uh, developing as when when they were in London, I think. In a way, the yeah, you know, even though the Beatles were still very young uh, when they went to London, uh, they were they were kind of um, a finished product in some ways. Now you'd say, well, wait a minute, Love Me Do isn't isn't the same as Sgt. Pepper's. What I mean is, in terms of they were like kind of like veterans uh, in a lot of ways, and they'd already, they really already paid their dues to the club dates. And whereas the London bands, whether it's the Stones or the Yardbirds, they still had to, you know, the who, they still had to kind of do that London club circuit thing. Or people like you mentioned, the animals coming in from Newcastle or the zombies or people like that. Um, and so, yeah, the Beatles didn't really, that wasn't really necessary at that point. They'd already kind of made the jump uh, to a bigger commercial level. We've talked a lot about the blues there are other elements that made up classic rock, though, and we we, we should, before we finish, uh, talk a little bit about the folk scene, which which fed into um, the the classic rock that we see in the sort of late seventies, late sixties, and early seventies. It's funny because the folk scene or the folk uh, 
club circuit was like parallel, let's say, to the rock club circuit in the UK. And and you talk to people on both sides and they're like, they didn't mix. They didn't mix. They're so insistent, you know, that they didn't mix. And um, and so and I and that made me think they had to mix. <laughs> yeah. And and, <laughs> and and right. And you get you and get a so, band like Led Zeppelin, which is as much a folk band as a, as a rock band and uh, Jethro Tull and Jethro Tull. You know, I, I was just thinking this too, cause I had a, one of my roommates gave me a benefit, uh, the benefit record, Jethro Tull and uh, same thing. And I listened to that and I was like, this is really good. <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> um, but, uh, but yes, uh, there's so many of those bands, whether obviously drawn from folk traditions or not, uh, were, and, um, and yeah, people forget that about Led Zeppelin. You mentioned them I and mean, so much of their, especially their early albums were just drawn from all that and, and, uh, it had an enormous influence. And I think it, it made everything much more English. Um, and, um, and I think that was part of what kind of, let's say, graduated these bands from, let's say, emulating the American blues bands to creating their own identity, which they did. And, uh, which, uh, the book, um, details in, in a rather engaging uh, manner. Stephen, thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed this book. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for the kind words. It was fun. It, it, uh, the book was fun, too. London, Rain Over Me, uh, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock by Stephen Tao is published by Rowan and Littlefield at £15.95 in the UK and it's $28 in America. And worth every penny. Stephen, thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>